first church that I pastored was in the Appalachian Mountains of North Carolina. And we had, during the first couple of months that I was there, we had a gal who sat in the back, and she was, she looked older, she looked uh, very, very tired, she looked somewhat unkempt, not put together, someone that, you know, her hair was, was, was kind of out of sorts, older style dress that she wore, not that I'm uh, trying to assess her except to say she looked like someone that did not get out very much and someone that was very, very lonely. And from my position, my vantage point at the pulpit, it even looked like as I, as I was preaching that she would try to make eye contact, but then she would turn her eyes down, and she had a tremble. After the service, I asked one of the uh, elders, I was a newcomer myself, had they ever seen that person before? And they said, yes, that's Elizabeth Hall. Elizabeth lives back in the holler, and you need to visit her and get to know Elizabeth. She comes only a couple of times out of the year. She has agoraphobia. She has a fear of crowds. And it's a great effort for her to leave her home and come to church. And so I put her on my my rounds to, to visit, and as I went up the drive to their Gothic-styled home that she lived in by herself, she uh, came to the, the door, and I felt like I was visiting Miss Habersham at Great Expectations, you know, everything. I was like, you know, let's turn some lights on, um, and it was, it was just very dark furniture and dark paneling and just very dark, but she had, uh, she had place settings set up on the table as if she had just entertained but had not entertained in a long time. And so we sat down and she uh, had made me a, a cup of tea and we sat down and she shared her story with me. She was an English professor at Lees McRae, which is a, was a Presbyterian college at that time in Banner Elk, North Carolina. And her father, Reverend Hall, had been one of the founders. He had come to the Appalachian Mountains as a missionary to those folks and had founded a church. And he had found, helped to found Lees McRae College and administered in that area and had many, many people that, that remembered him uh, very fondly and uh, loved him. But she had a nervous breakdown. She had never married. She had few relationships. And over the years, uh, through various reasons, she, her health began to fail, and she left the college, and she spent just about every waking hour in the home that she inherited from her family, her father, in her papa's house. This is my papa's house, and I feel safe here. This is my papa's house, and I know he is with the Lord, but Pastor Phil... It takes every bit of courage and energy that I can get, that I can, I can get up to go to church. And I said, Elizabeth, I am so, I never knew. I, I am so proud. I'm so proud of you. 
uh, fast forward years later now, after almost 30 years of ministry, I know plenty of people that have to have a drink to come in to a worship service or a gathering of the church. I know plenty of people that have, perhaps even today, had every intention to come to church, but because of a fear of community, a fear of being in Papa's house with others, they never left the driveway. Maybe even dressed to come, but they not yet today. I know plenty of people that get as far as the parking lot and never leave the car to come in. There's a larger number than we suspect. And many times this what is the head scratcher. It's not because we've wounded them in as much that out of their own wounds and out of their own hurts and out of their own fears, they can't come among us the healthy, or so they perceive the good, the whole Christian, because they're weak and they're hurting. And so they stay alone and isolated from God's people. I asked Elizabeth, I said, can I send someone, can we assist you to come more often to what was the church that your papa attended when he was alive? Transportation, someone to sit with you, someone to carry you out to lunch afterwards. She says, no, no. She said, the thing that gives me the most inspiration and courage is that they're still friends of my papa in that church. And my papa, who I adored, always wanted me to be friends with his friends. And so as long as his friends survive, I will go to be with my papa's friends. And in a very real sense, I feel like that is pleasing to my papa and that he smiles on me for that. That's the sermon, folks. Jesus Christ is telling us that we are now invited as we abide in him to abide in his father's love. And evidence of being a friend with God as we move from being formerly alien and an enemy to God, then we move to a position to say, he's a master and a Lord, and I will be a servant. We're ushered in and said, no longer even a servant, but a friend with God. And now, as you are a friend with God, you are to be a friend with his friends. In other words, if you live and make your abode in the home of God, if you would claim that you are in God the Father and in Christ, then we're to live in loving relations with all those that make Christ their home. Another way to put it simply is this. If you are united in Christ, then we're to be united with one another. If we are to live in and experience the love of Christ, we are to live in and experience the love for and from one another.
And that's the message. That's the message, and it's part two because last week we spoke about what it means to take Christ as our home. What it means to move from our own environment, our own building, our own kingdom and home, and to move into his home. And we saw that he uses the analogy of a vine, and how that vine, out of his great love, he will prune. Sometimes he will cut it back, and sometimes he'll trim a little here, and sometimes he'll make great surgical moves, but the promise is for that vine to flourish and to bear fruit. And I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but you'll notice at the end of that passage that Nathan read, it says in verse 16 that we should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, and that for some of your Bible means that that fruit shall not perish. That fruit has an eternal characteristic. And I, I thought in the course of this last week, what fruit that those that are in the vine of Christ, those that would say, I'm a follower of Christ, I know unity with Christ, what is the fruit of our life that abides for all eternity? Well, it's not sermons. It's not Bible studies. It's not Sunday school classes that we teach. It's not even the, the, the scripture that we teach to our children and family devotions. Now, God's word is eternal. These words will never pass away. But it's more the effect... It's that seed of God's word that is planted that changes another human being. It's the fruit of relationships that are eternal. The one fruit of our life that I could determine that would abide for all eternity are other people. The people that we influence, the people that our life bears fruit in their life. Their life becomes the fruit that we have influenced and impact. Now you can correct me at the door before you leave if you think of another. And some of you are saying, I got him, I got him, I got him. But I've really studied on this. You know, we could build a grand church here in the Park Circle community of North Charleston, but that's not going to be, that's not going to abide. We can go to foreign mission fields and accept we impact other individuals. The fruit of networking, the fruit of publishing, the fruit of authoring books, that fruit is not going to bind, except the fruit in other people. Elizabeth Hall would come to church because of the great influence of her papa who loved Jesus. And she was a, she was a wonderful Christian. It was a privilege to preside years later at her funeral service where there were more people than she would have been ever comfortable around in attendance because they loved her and they ministered to her and her woundedness. But she came to church because it was her father's house and she wanted, to the best of her ability, to both love and to befriend those and be befriended by those in the father's house who were the father's own. 
I want, to, I want you to see three things in the time that remains before we come to a picture of life and fruit in the Father's house, which is the Lord's table. The Lord's table is going to beckon us, even as I preach. I want you to see the Lord's table as a family table. Father God presides over this table. Elder brother, Jesus Christ, Savior, Lord, and Master. He serves from this table. And at this family table with a family gathering, with the Father at the head and Christ serving, the Holy Spirit works invisibly a grace in our heart that allows us to have renewed strength to show grace and love to the most difficult family members gathered around this table or who come to this table. Because, like all families, we're dysfunctional. Like all families, there's sin and there are obstacles and there's things that come up in our temperaments and our personalities and our, our habits and our addictions and our choices that make family members very difficult to love. But Christ would have us learn three things in a very practical, practical application. Now that we are in part one, we're now abiding and making our home in Christ. What does homemaking look like in Christ? What do family members, what, how could we tell that they are living in Christ's home? Well, they would be expressing, they would be experiencing the love of God, the Father. They would be obedient to his command to love one another, and they would do so out of the fuel and the energy of the gospel of love. Let's look at those uh, quickly as time remains here. We're told in verse 9 that as the Father has loved me, and that is Jesus Christ is the me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. I started to I started to, to list the passages in the Old Testament through the New Testament where we could have instances of the Father's love. And I found that it was such an overwhelming list that for the purposes of a Sunday morning, I mean, this would be a great Sunday to have a, a gathering in the cafeteria after the service, to have some, some, some food, and then just really look at this text and to take questions and have insights and, and to really explore this further. But I, I couldn't because it was so expansive. Let me tell you simply this, that from the very beginning of creation, community with one another is the Father's idea. Living in relationships with one another from the beginning of creation is God's idea. In Genesis 2, verse 18, God saw that man was alone and that that was not good. Translated, being alone is not what we were created for. It's the first thing in creation the only thing in creation, that God said, I'm not going to rest because it's not complete. That is not good. Every other act of creation 
he said, and it was good. And then he steps back and moves to another act of creation. But in this, he said, it's not complete. Man is not made to be alone. In one sense, you could say that it's less than human. Human beings, apart from the animals, we cannot survive alone. And we become less than human. We move farther and farther away from our humanness. The farther and farther away we move from community and relationships and in isolation. I.e., look at what happens with someone when they are really in solitary confinement. We're not made that way. In my reading this week, I saw a really clear example in Genesis 16, verse 13. This is where Hagar has born a child, Ishmael. The background is, is that God has promised Abraham a family community. But it's just him and Sarah. And now Sarah has this idea that she's going to advance the promise of God as she is weary of waiting, and she offers a servant girl, Hagar, to bear a child with her husband Abraham. In other words, totally outside of God's plan, human beings, we are restless and impatient. We try to solve it on our own and make a complete mess of things. Hagar and Sarah, after the birth of Ishmael, have words. Hagar is very haughty. She treats Sarah with contempt. Sarah is very jealous of the child and very angry, and she makes Abraham send her away. Hagar is literally in the desert, prepared to perish. She is making no moves forward with the infant child, and God, it says, an angel of the Lord, comes to her, and he says, I want you to go back, and I want you to live in community with Abraham and Sarah. And I, that is my plan. I know it's going to be difficult. This is my adding to it, commentary. I know it's going to be impossible, but the Lord is with you. And there and then, in Genesis 16, she gives a name for the Lord that has not previously appeared in the Scriptures. She calls him the God who sees me. And some translate it as uh, Mother Teresa, not of Calcutta, but Mother Teresa of Avila, who Mother Teresa of Calcutta took her, her uh, saintly or patronly name from, she, they translate it as, I see God seeing me. I see God who sees me. I see God who sees me in my aloneness. Even if I am in my aloneness because of a fight in a relationship, even if I'm in my aloneness because I'd rather die apart from this troublesome than live in this troublesome relationship, that God, who it is not meant to be, comes to me and says, I know it's a difficult relationship. I will be with you. Now go back to that community because it's a part of my plan. You see how that works? Think as we continue of the most difficult relationship that you're in right now. What if God is calling you by his design for community to remain in that relationship? What if God has a plan for you in the most difficult relationship 
to not withdraw, not cut off, but further engage and be used by Him to not simply change another person, but by the power of His Holy Spirit to change you in that difficult relationship. I do believe that Hagar would go back a changed woman, but she would go back and be mindful that now Sarah's God and Abram's God is her God, and he sees and he knows the difficulty, but he is present in that relationship. Um, it's important, as I leave this point, it's important that you realize that it is the Father's idea and that we are to first and foremost abide, as Jesus says, in the Father's love, to abide there. To, to Abiding here is kind of like come into the house, come into the Father's house and relax. Just, man, come into the Father's love and take a load off. C.S. Lewis says this, what I have learned, when I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. Insofar as I learn to love my earthly dearest at the expense of God and instead of God, I shall be moving towards the state in which I shall not love my earthly dearest at all. And then he famously says this, when first things are put first, second things are not suppressed but increased. When first things are put first, my love relationship with the Father, experiencing afresh and anew that the Father loves me, then second things are not only suppressed, but actually increased. In other words, to the degree that I experience love, I am now able and free to express love. But you have to put first things first. And Jesus Christ does that. He doesn't give the command to love first without giving the endorsement and the invitation to come into the Father's love. Park yourself first in the Father's love. For without doing that, you will find it impossible to obey the command to love others. People are just too sinful. We're just too sinful. There are just too many obstacles but parking myself in the Father's love will then put me in gear and engage me, cause me to engage in relationships with others. It's important to recognize that because we now see Jesus Christ in verse 12 giving a commandment. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Why do we need to be commanded? Why do I need to be commanded to love? The world tells us that we all have love within us. That we are all loving creatures. And there are various obstacles, maybe a lack of education or an environment that we live in, that can make us more hostile or it can, it can cause attention in relationships. But we all have the capacity to love one another. We all have the capacity, it is true, to love one another. Capacity meaning space. We have 
the potential, as it were. But apart from the resource of a changed heart, we will not be able to love others over ourselves. We will always love others apart from a changed heart, apart from a heart that pumps out new love, and that requires a new heart, our old heart will only pump out love as it fulfills my self-love. In other words, the old Phil, oh, I'd love you. You would think I was, oh, he's a sweet guy. He's a loving guy until I needed something. And I apologize to my friends that I still do this on occasion uh, <clears throat> where it seems like all of our phone conversations and every time I talk to you, I'm, I'm just asking for something. And I'm not giving anything. But the old Phil, oh, I would love you, but I was always loving you with an agenda. I was always loving you for myself. I was always loving you building up an account that you could pay me back to meet my wants and my needs. Not so with a new heart. Evidence of a new heart is a kind of love that in verse 13, greater love has no one than this. In other words, there's not a greater love than this kind of love that I am commanding you to show. I want you to show a kind of love that the world does not know. And I want it to be a great love. And here's the kind of love that great love is. That someone lays down his life for his friends. Not self-love, but other love. Not self-glorifying or self-serving, but other-glorifying and other-serving. Dan Allender, in his book, Healing Pathways, which we have, I think, two copies left on the book table. Great book particularly for those of you that have been hurt, devastated, totally blown out of the water and so burned that you are cynical and you hold every potential relationship at a distance. If you ever go back into a relationship, it's got to be it's got to be run through all of these criteria and all these tests because you'll never want to be hurt like that again. Great book, Dan Allender. But the gospel that he's simply an echo of, he quotes uh, Gerald Marcel, who says that community and love and community is when we go to one another and I say, I have hope in you for us. I have hope in you for us. I have love in you and it will make me and you better for that. I love you, not simply for you, and I love you, not simply for me, but I love you for us, and that us is community. We are both wounded. We are two sinners working out our relationship together, but it is the community and the idea and the plan of God to do so. We have to be commanded to do it. We have to be. We have to see that it is an act of, of obedience to the most loving Lord. He makes no bones about it. He said in answer to what's the greatest commandment, he said it's twofold. And that means that you can't say that you love God and you don't love one another. You can't do it. And you can't say that you love one another if you don't love God because you don't have it in you to do. But God at creation said community 
It's his idea. He lived in community with the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ prior to the creation of the world. And he says, I create a people now to reflect our love and our image that will live in community with one another. The fall in the garden brought sin into our world. We now live in a broken world with broken relationships being evidenced in all of our relationships. There's a level of brokenness. But in that, he comes, and by giving us the command, he says, I will also, by the forgiveness of sin, when you look to me in faith, I'll give you a new heart. You'll be a new creation, and one who is able now, by the power of my love, to go back to that ancient mandate to love and community with one another, you'll be able to do it. You'll be able to experience it. Now, before I leave this, just a, a word of, um, of advice. You'll notice on your outline that I make the comment that we're either moving toward, uh, we're either moving away from someone or some people in isolation, or we're moving toward others in immersion. Imagine a couple, and let's say that this couple wants to work on their relationship. One person is very introverted. Maybe it's past hurts, it's not simply temperament, but they, are, they live in isolation when it comes to relationships. The other couple, and maybe it's a prior hurt, that they just will only let so much out, they'll only put so much in the relationship as they guard themselves and protect themselves. The other person is all into immersion. I mean, they want to talk it out, work it out. I mean, they're, they're just, you know, they just really got a, an agenda to, to work on. Imagine they take a vacation. Three couples take a vacation. The first couple, one of them is isolated in relationships. The other one is immersed in relationship. So the one who's isolated, as they go on vacation... Oh, they have all these books that they just want to read. They just want to sit on the beach and just kind of read and be quiet. Don't want to go out to eat. Don't want to have um, even a lot of time together. It's okay, I'll stay at the beach and read. And you stay up in the room and watch the ball game or whatever. But just kind of me time. Together. Me time together. Another person is like, no, 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 no. Yeah, look, we're going to go on the boat tour, and we're going to go, we're, I mean, we're going to eat downtown, and we got all this stuff, and then we're just going to talk, 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 talk the whole time about us, and then I've got, I've got a counseling DVD, and we'll watch it together, and then we'll just, we'll just do all this stuff, and the other person's like, ah! And so you have a very frustrated relationship. There's an impasse there. The other couple, both of them, are, in, are, are immersed very committed to them, very committed to the relationship again, but they, they plan this vacation where it's just always out there, this just huge agenda of activities and, and stuff to do, and they're just totally immersed in each other. But again, something's missing. There's a third couple, they go on vacation, and both of these couples are isolationists. Both of these couples have things that they want to do away from each other. They might as well stay at two different places. And they kind of maybe meet up in the evening, but it's all about focusing just on me and not the other person. 
The command to love one another is selfless. The command is to even put my life aside to love another person, but it's never a command to do it in your own ability and your own energy. And the slip comes when we try to get a plan and we even manipulate others out of our expectations that this is what is going to do it. And we do it, again, the key is here, the tell is doing it in your own energy. Because we see that Jesus Christ, in introducing to us this example of great love, of putting self-love aside and my love aside and, and, and fueling by the Father's love, you know, resting there, he says... Love, let me give you the the gospel of love. Let me give you the good news of love. And that comes in verse uh, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. None of us look. None of us looking at our life, seeing this command to love one another, feel like we measure up. But the gospel of love tells us that Jesus Christ, he has fulfilled this command of love. With his life, with his love, he was the one that fulfilled the gospel of love. Is He's the one that fulfilled the command so that I look at this command and I don't feel guilty. No, I don't love others like I should. But this command with his promise, it inspires me instead of beats me down and causes me to give up. He says, I command you to go and love. But again, the given is, is it's not in my own energy or else I will give up. I will in the relationship find myself frequently just saying, Talk to the hand, I'm out of here. Or a teenager just putting the headphones on so that his parents are just so much. Or the person who says, I'll get so close, but I've opted to stay isolated because of the hurt. We're willing, if it's just on my own energy, we'll say, I just don't have it in me. And of course you don't. But the gospel says this that he has so loved us that we now can love one another. And he has so loved us that dwelling there, we are freed to love one another. Do you remember the, uh, do you remember the movie, The Goonies? Um, there was uh, one of the lead characters, a little boy there. Um, the story is, is that he really was kind of overlooked in the crowd of friends. And he wasn't a brave or adventuresome sort of little boy. He was asthmatic, so he had his breather, his little pump with him all the time. And, and particularly when he was very threatened, he'd be you know, pumping on that. When he was in a difficult situation, he would pump on that breather as if it would give him you know, courage. You know, I can do this now. We need to inhale. We need to learn how to breathe in the home. We need to breathe in 
have an intake of the Father's love. Christ says, abide in the Father's love. Know the Father's love. Experience the Father's love. It's tremendous. Secondly, we need to exhale love out to others. We're taking in the Father's love. It's not my own air. It's His air. I'm taking it in. And then we need to exhale. And then there are plenty of times that we need the Holy Spirit. We need that burst, as it were. We need that burst, that infusion of Christ's love for us, the gospel, where the gospel teaches us, even as it's demonstrated in this table, that Jesus Christ was the forsaken friend on the cross. You see, there was a family. There was a relationship. There was the God the Father, there was Jesus Christ the Son, and there was the Holy Spirit. And that holy family, as it were, was shattered, broken, separated at the cross. But it was shattered and broken at the expense of the Son who willingly, great love, said, not because of the command of God, but because of His loving response to the Father's invitation to reestablish and reconcile community with His people. He responded and He said, I'm willing to be the abandoned one in the relationship. I'm willing to be the one that is out of relationship, the forsaken one, so that any who receive Me in their place I exchange with them that they now can be the friend of God who will never be separated. Nothing will separate us now. Nothing. At the expense of Him being forsaken, we're received and we stay in this family and relationships. Now, we've come to the table. I want to encourage you just... I've given you a couple of points to remember, but bear in mind, if there's something that you're saying very specifically, what are you asking me to do? This is, I, I kind of get the theory, I kind of get the, the concept here. What do I do? You know, we're such a doing people. What, what, do you want, what do you want me to do, preacher? I want you to do three things. I want you to see that community and relationships are God's idea. They're God, it's God's idea. And you cannot opt out. It's God's plan. It's God's idea. It's His plan. In fact, you could say that all theology, all the teaching of the Bible is about community. Community with God, community with one another, and how to live in that community forever. Number two, not only see community as God's idea, but see the most difficult relationship right now before you. Some of you have a name and a face. See the most difficult relationship before you as being God's choice tool not to change that relationship for your comfort, but to change you in the relationship. In other words, theologically, the term is sanctification. In other words, the very difficult relationship that you've been avoiding or praying God to, to change, 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 change the relationship, God wants to use to change you.
Number three, we're not without resource. Notice in the scripture, he says, you can pray and I will answer. Learn to pray. Make me a son or a daughter who loves one another. You have commanded, I want to obey. Change me, change my heart, give me the resources, but the promise has all of the potential found in Jesus Christ. He will answer that prayer every time. If you ask to be a more loving person, if you ask for the Holy Spirit to give you the fuel, if you pray, help me to fulfill this command to love one another, he has promised in his word to answer that. Let us pray. Father, the community table is before us. Communion with you, communion with one another. Every person that comes to take of this table this morning can be said to be a brother and sister through Jesus Christ. This is a table for your children, for the weak and for the strong, for the healed and whole and for the wounded, of which we are many. And Lord, from this table we pray that you would work grace, that you would strengthen our hearts to love one another, even by your love for us. And we ask this in Christ's name.